0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Special Education Services in the San Francisco United um, Unified School District. She brings much expertise as a principal as well as uh the central office administrator in the role of special education supervisor. And uh we're looking forward to hearing Jean's talk. Thank you, Jean. Hi everybody. Wow. Um, I loved your talk. I, I think I could have sat and listened to it all day because there are so many um things that we're doing together. Um, although my office is way out at the beach. I'm at Santiago and 42nd, but we're doing a lot of similar work for the city of San Francisco, which is exciting. So this is my very first keynote ever in my whole life. I want you to know that. Um, So you're going to have to bear with me, okay? Okay. So my um, talk this morning is starting with special education. I was asked to come here and basically give you special education 101, sort of what we can do together and how you can Um, access and help your patients access special education. So I don't have videos. I have a little bit of storytelling, um, but it's going to be um, somewhat basic because that's what I was asked to do. I would be happy to come back another time and um, really let a rip from my experiences um, in my career in working with kids with special needs. So we're starting with special education. My name is Jean Robertson. I am the relatively new chief of special education. Um, I just had my one-year anniversary two weeks ago, and my entire career has been here in San Francisco, um, and I have had 20, I think, oh gosh, I don't know, 26 years in San Francisco Unified School District. Um, the disclosure page, I, yeah, I'm just going to skip over this if that's okay with you. I did what they told me to do. All right, moving on to my overview. So what I did for the overview is just to sort of capture, um, San Francisco's overall vision and mission, which, um, this is actually our special education department's, um, vision, where we provide services and support for, um, our students with disabilities and their families that are characterized by quality, equity, positive in-school and post-school outcomes. The department is led by me, the chief, and is responsible for early intervention for infants and toddlers, preschool for students starting at age three, services for school-age children in kids, grades K through 12, and transition services for eligible students up to the age of 22. And chief Scott just told me that his son graduated from the ACCESS program just at mid-year this year, so congratulations to your graduate. So, our learning objectives today, I had to think good and hard about, like, what I wanted you to leave with. And so, I decided that the brief description was important, and it's vital that we each understand our role in child find, um, what the assessment process is, um, what an IEP really looks like, and when things, when we're a little bit in disagreement, what the alternatives are, um, to, uh, come together and and get through our disputes. So we call it the ADR, the um, Alternative Dispute Resolution. And that's prior to um, the smackdown when you have to go to the California Department of Education or make an OCR complaint, which is the Office of Civil Rights, if your child's or your patient's um, rights are being denied. I would hope that we could come together before that and, and work through whatever the issues are together. That's always been my goal anyway. I want you to understand the lay of the land of what's happening at the school site level. We have over 120 schools in the school district, and the schools are at different levels of understanding and implementation of the laws around special education, and it has to do with how, I like to use the word woke, our principals are. The principals are in charge of all things at their schools, and if they're not woke and fully understand what's in front of them around special ed, then we can run into a lot of problems as a district. So um, that training piece that um, Chief Scott was talking about is absolutely, it's, it's vital and the same thing in our schools as well. And I'm um, saddled with that responsibility. We're also um, going to talk about best practices and collaboration um, together, meaning us, me and you, and the police, of course, as well. And all city agencies. All right, so this is me. I wanted you to um, understand why I'm here um, and what I do. Um, The photo on the left is me as a teacher at James Lick Middle School. It was probably 1990, I don't know, seven maybe. Uh, That was about my third job. I started out as a uh, first grade teacher here in the city. I couldn't get a job in the school district. They weren't hiring at that time, so I went private. I worked at Discovery Center School. It was the old Safeway on um, Ocean and Alamany. It uh, was a very kind of working-class private school. A lot of families were doing, you know, weren't doing public schools back in the day. It was a very diverse school. It was the cheapest one in the district. So I actually was exposed to a lot of diversity and working-class families and it was a good place for me to cut my teeth. I taught first grade and I really learned how to teach kids to read. I was using a research-based reading curriculum and that was a wonderful foundation for me. Um, I needed to clear my credential. I cried. I had a baby. I had to go back to college. I couldn't believe it. I thought I can't do this. Um, And my principal at the time handed me a paper uh, that spelled out a program at SF State and said, go do this. I said, what is this? She said, it's a program for a master's degree and an administrator's credential. I said, I'm not doing that. She said, do it. You're going to lose your credential if you don't. So I said, all right, how much is it? So I asked my mom. My parents didn't pay for much of my education. I went to a college in Rhode Island where I'm from and commuted. I didn't live on campus. I went on the cheap. That's how we were. Um, so I was their cheapest kid, and when it came to getting a master's, they were sort of into that. So they, they helped me out a little bit and got me through that master's program. So at this job at James Lick, when that principal encouraged me to go higher, I was teaching seventh and eighth grade. I was a resource specialist. I did have a special ed credential. I always wanted to be a special education teacher. I was drawn to kids who learned differently. I was fascinated by them. I found them mysterious and exciting and I wanted to get in their world and more than anything, I wanted to help them. I was that kid. Um, So that was a wonderful job. You can see I was thrilled and happy. Uh, Most of my career, I've been thrilled and happy. So after I got my master's, I also had another baby in that time. So I I have two girls. So in 1999, I got my master's. I had my second baby. (coughs) Soon after that, they made me be a principal because we needed principals at the time. My husband said, you can do it. I encourage you. I said, I can't do it. I don't know the first thing about being a principal. He said, you can do it. Do it. So he said, I'll support you the whole way. So I took a job at Grattan Elementary School in the year 2000. I had um, an 11-month-old baby and a six-year-old daughter at Harvey Meltz Civil Rights Academy at the time and I had a supportive husband. And there's me on the first day of school as a principal. Um, I stayed at Grattan. Grattan at that time had five empty classrooms. People didn't want to go to that school. And I love a challenge. I love a fight. I always want to win. And I said, I'm going to fix this. And, um, over the course of a decade, I was there for 11 years. That school went cray-cray. It went off the map. People just came in droves. They just wanted to be at that school. And basically what we did, um, we were just so accepting of everybody. They asked me at that time at that school, they said, well, you have a, um, a class for kids with special needs. Uh, autism is on the rise. We need a school to host autism classes. And remember, I had five empty classrooms. I, I was the special ed principal. I said, of course I'll take autism at my school. Um, and so <coughs> that was the beginning of a beautiful journey. I have so many stories, and they, some of them involve police. Um, when our <laughs> so it's making me think about like all the crossovers that we have together. You know, I had one kid with autism who was um, attracted to Sutro Tower. If you know where Grattan is, it's down in Coal Valley, and Sutro was right up the hill on Tank Hill. And this kid was determined to go to Tank Hill, and so we had to put the school on lockdown, and well one day he escaped, and uh, we knew he was missing, so I always had the five-minute rule, because sometimes they're in therapy, sometimes, some 99% of the time they're in the building, just so you know, but every once in a while they're not, and so I have a five-minute rule, and if we can't find him in five minutes, we have to call the cops, and so we did, you know, we ran around, well, we had to call the cops that day, And they found him um, up on Rivoli, just two blocks up, alone, a kid with autism, you know, tiptoeing and flapping and looking for Sutro Tower. So I just want to say thank you to your (laughs) police officers. Um, I've had three kids escape in my 18 years as a principal, and... Two involved the police. Um, one, I got myself, but um, it's real. That's real. Um, and I'm not proud that kids escaped, but they do escape. If any of you have any experience with kids on the spectrum, <coughs> that notion of finding um, that happy place or that balance is very real, and they'll do whatever they can to get there. So, anyway, after my 11 years there, I went to special ed for a year because I got recruited because I was the special ed principal, and they said, Gene, we want you to come over here and do this supervisor job. I did it for one year. There were 21 schools under my um, supervisorial genius, I guess whatever you want to call it. It was nuts. One of the schools in that time was Glen Park School who had had a principal for 29 years and they had two special day classes and when I went to that school and I saw the conditions at Glen Park School um, compared to the conditions at Grattan School, I, I... I just felt such a compelling draw to go back to a school and help that community build and grow a program that is noteworthy in a positive way. And I wanted to be with the kids and um, building a community, so I went back to a school. And I stayed at Glen Park for six years until um, Dr. Matthews started in, as our superintendent. <coughs> and he asked me to apply to be the chief of special ed um, because he felt I I was right for it um, for the reasons that I, you know, whatever, I'm not going to get into that. He worked on me and I said, no, who would do that job? That's an awful job. That's the worst job in the district. Being the chief of special ed is seriously an incredibly um, difficult place to be because we're not at our best in our schools. Um, We're not always doing great we do do great things, but we, do, we have problems. We have a lot of pockets of problems in our district as well. Um, and it's, it's a huge endeavor. Remember I told you I wanted to win and I wanted to make things great? Um, well, I felt this might be a little bigger than me, and I might not be up to it. Um, anyway, they worked on me for six months, and I finally said yes. So here I am, chief of special education, and I'm determined to better the conditions in our schools and in our city for kids with special needs. So I'm in for the long haul, as long as the Board of Ed doesn't fire me. So as I said, my career has been in um, San Francisco. We are guided by these core values, and they um, absolutely speak to me. Um, just seeing if there's anything else here. No, we're going to move on because we're making up some time. Our mission is that every day we provide each and every student the quality instruction and equitable support required to thrive in the 21st century. If any of you write me an email and I respond, my little tagline at the bottom is whatever it takes um, in the life of, wholly committed to whatever it takes in the life of a child. So this this, um, sort of captures that a little bit as well, this notion of equitable support. We are very committed to equity in our district because we have problems. We have huge disproportionality problems. And so this is bubbled up always. And recently I was at a superintendent meeting and I noticed that in this equity definition that they were putting up, they put it up in front of us every time, there was a word that was missing and I was very upset. And so I'm gonna read this to you and then I want you to just think what word may have been missing that really upset me. The work of eliminating oppression, ending biases, and ensuring equally high outcomes for all participants through the creation of multicultural, multi able, multilingual, multi ethnic, multiracial practices and conditions, removing the predictability of success or failure that currently correlates with any social or cultural factor. You think you know the word? It was multi able first of all i, I don 't even know if I'd seen that word in print prior to this definition, but when I did see it, it spoke to me. I thought wow they really they they called it out ability ability awareness um, is so incredibly huge, and what you were talking about, Chief Scott, is ability awareness on your um, your police force well my my school force, whatever you want to call it um, you know. That's the that's the vital work that I have to do, is because there there are teachers of different levels of understanding around ability awareness, um, so that that's part of my vision um, in the work that I'm going to continue to do over the course of the next several years. Um, Vision 2025 is reimagining public education in San Francisco for a new generation. This is a document, it's more than a document, I mean, it's captured in a document, but this was a process that took place under the direction of Richard Carranza, who was our superintendent several years ago. I loved Richard. Um, I love most people. I'm one of those people. I I get fired up and inspired. Um, I loved the work in Vision 2025, and there's a lot in it. And I was going to sort of bust out some of what's great in it today, but I I need to cut back a little bit on time, so I'm not going to go too into it. I think that you're going to have these slides available to you, so I encourage you to look into Vision 2025. But basically what it is is... Truly reimagining what schools look like and how we educate our kids. Um, I'll just pop this out for an example. You're your doctors and clinicians, um, you, you know so much. When you think about a middle school kid and sort of what's happening in their body around um, not only hormones, but their sleep patterns, I have to question, beg the question, why do we make middle school kids go to school at seven and eight o'clock in the morning? when their bodies are so completely upside down and they don't really settle down and go to sleep until midnight or 1 in the morning. Like, that's their rhythm in their bodies. So I would hope that as we go towards Vision 2025 that we're sort of thinking about not only imagining environmental space, um, our time, our time limits on kids, how we get kids to show what they know, why we're still bubbling in bubbles on norm reference tests is just beyond me. Um, Kids have multiple intelligences and it's important that we capture um, their genius and their brilliance in a way that they're comfortable um, and what's right for them in in sharing their brilliance and genius. So I'm going to move on from that. Um, Part of the vision 2025 is the graduate profile. So I'm just gonna leave this up here for a minute and let you take a quick look. this is what we 're hoping that our graduates will have at the end of their tenure. I love the creativity piece. If that was valued when I was growing up i I would have been a genius. <laughs> okay, the next slide. Um, these are my friends, just so you know. Uh, these are my kids, and I I have so many beautiful pictures that capture 18 years of um, running a show in the district, but I had to be really mindful of um, privacy laws. But this is Mr. Scott and his crew, and I I thought I'd just throw one little slide in there to give you a glimpse of the beauty that I got to spend my days with every day. So you pretty much know what developmental disabilities are, I would hope, but I did capture a quick... um, Definition from the center, Centers of di- Disease Control and Prevention. And I'm going to move on. And you know who is, a- is affected. Developmental disabilities occur among all racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic groups. It's an equal opportunity. Um condition, recent estimates in the United States show that about one in six or about 15% of children aged three through 17 years have one or more developmental disabilities. And these are some of them listed here. So in my world, it all starts with the federal mandate of IDEA, the individuals with disabilities act. It's the law. Um, I love saying it's the law. Um, My teachers, you know, when they would try to sneak out of something or, you know, come up with a new idea that wasn't quite within the parameters of the law, I would always just say it's the law, like it's non-negotiable. And then not only just saying it's the law, but we say it's what's right for it's what is right for kids. We always followed it up with, "This is what is right for kids." It's a law for a reason. So the primary purposes of IDEA are to provide a free, appropriate public education to children with disabilities. Uh, We call it FAPE. Uh, You know we're the acronym capital of the world, okay? IDEA requires schools to find and evaluate students suspected of having disabilities at no cost to the parents. Once kids are identified as having a disability, schools must provide them with special education and related services like speech therapy and counseling to meet their unique needs. The goal is to help students make progress in school. This progress thing is, is very real, and I could do another whole 20 slides just on progress, progress monitoring, how often do we get in trouble for not progress monitoring. That is a big, big litigation issue um, in our district, and I imagine it is in many districts, but this is... This is key. We have to write appropriate goals for kids, and then we have to watch them, and we have to collect data and map. How are they doing? Just like you do in your, in your work. I imagine you're looking to see how kids are developing, and you, know, you have your little charts and percentiles. I know you do. I have two kids, remember. Um, it is also to give parents a voice in their child's education So I have a little um, anecdote on this one. I remember that first slide when I was like in my 20s um, at James Lick Middle School is when I really first started writing IEPs. Prior to that, I had just been a college student and did practice IEPs. And then I taught gen ed for six years in the first grade. So when I went to the middle school, I had to start writing IEPs. And, um, oh, I thought I was great at IEPs. You know, I'd sit there and you know, connect with the family and talk about the kid. And after one IEP, um, my partner, the school counselor, Paolo, I'll never forget him. He's a good guy. He was so kind. I, I'm so blessed that I've had kind people around me. I've had other, maybe not so kind people, but the kind people are the ones that shaped my behavior as an educator. And, and he put his hand on mine and he said, I said, how did I do? How was that? He's like, that was great. He said, but you really never let the parent speak. You did almost all of the talking. And um, I, I remember it was like a gut punch. I, cause I thought I did great. You know, here I am like, woohoo. He's like, you never really let the parent share like what they needed to share about their parent. And luckily I can honestly say this. Luckily that happened very early in my special ed career. So I was mindful of that forever on afterwards that that, parents' voice and input, they are the expert of their child, hands down. They know their kid better than anybody. I was an expert of 28 kids. I had a caseload of 28 kids, so I had my caseload. I always say the principal's an expert of 350 or 400, whatever their world is, but that parent has the most information from a really unique um, standpoint, and I hope that you always were valued and had good input in your IEPs for your son. Um, And that is something that I will focus on um, very strongly and carefully in my new role as chief is to get schools and my people who support the schools. I have a whole staff that support the 121 schools um, to really value and not act like a big shot, like we're know-it-alls, because we're not know-it-alls. So that's another part of IDEA. The third part I wanted to mention is the IDEA covers children from birth through 21 or 22, depending on where their birthday falls. And it provides early intervention, which we all know is key, um, all from through age three um, into the public schools. And we, we also have to support kids in charter schools. Um, we, even, we even support some kids in um, the private school sector. That's, that's another 20% slide um, presentation about how vast our commitments are as a public school um, department of special education. It's not just the 121 schools um, in the comprehensive system, but it's also throughout this entire city. We are the city and county of San Francisco. Um, th- so we're our own SELPA, which stands for the Special Education Local Plan Area. Oftentimes it's county wise and there's lots of districts in a SELPA and then they support each other and they get funding that way. So I'm also the SELPA director. Not only am I the chief, see I told you this was the hardest job in the district. It's I'm the chief and the SELPA director. So it's the entire city. So it's nuts. Um, But I'm here, basically, to tell you today that teamwork makes the dream work. Now, this sounds dorky, and I've been known to say it on a daily basis, and we used to laugh at each other at the school site, and when I went up to the, the beach the Santiago special ed department, um, I started saying it there. I actually got pushback, um, from one of my people who said, you know, why do you say that? It's just, you know, she didn't like it. And she's like, I have my team. This is my team. So she's got like a division of special ed and she, you know, talks to her team. And so we had to kind of have a little bit of a smackdown on like, why, (laughs) why this, we're going to say this. And you, you know, you have to buy into this. Like we're in this together. Um, But I'm also here to tell you today that I'm in this with you as well. Uh, And basically, I think that's why I was invited here today. I want to give you a glimpse into my world, and I want to let you know where we can cross over and do this work together. And hopefully by the end, and I'm watching this clock, and we can do some Q&A, but some of my greatest and I'm most proud of work is the work that I've done when I was able to cross over with the medical profession, professionals um, in this city. That's when we did our greatest work. So, here you are. Early intervention is vital. The parents are on the front line, so they get a little inkling when something might not be okay with their kid. Where, um, if any of you are parents, you know what your gut is telling you on any given day. Um, I have a kid. On, I had a kid on an IEP. I cried like a baby, um, on the day that her teacher came to me and said, I think we should do an assessment. Cause I knew in my heart that my kid wasn't, <laughs> I don't want to say normal. She was broken. She was not okay. My daughter was not okay. And she was really struggling. And, um, We're Kaiser. We were a Kaiser family, and God bless her pediatrician. She was my greatest, greatest partner in the work with my daughter. My daughter's great. She's a self-advocate. She's 19. She's a sophomore at um, Portland State. She wants to cure cancer. She's a math nut nerd scientist. She wants to wear a lab coat. Um, She doesn't really want to deal with people. She wants to uh, work with test tubes and petri dishes, I think. But um, she wasn't okay as a little girl. Uh, she had the Wigglies, we called it, the Wiggles. Um, she had some repetitive behaviors, some OCD stuff going on. Um, high anxiety, wouldn't transition. I, just, uh, just nightmarish. Working mom, you know, the kid that wouldn't leave school at the end of the... I mean, oh, it was just awful. It was horrible. Anyway, I cried um, because... I knew, I knew, I knew. So we got her assessed and um, plugged her into a resource program where she had an advocate, and she got a lot of help with her um, executive functioning. And um, she, she, she just became, I didn't have to do it. I, my parenting stopped basically at that point, and she took off on her own once she knew what her conditions were. I remember the day, too, she said, I need a therapist. I said, go to the wellness center. She went to Mission High. I said, they have a great wellness center. She said, "I don't need a counselor, Mom. I need a therapist." <laughs> I was like, "Oh!" I said, "Well, go call one." You know, I was like, "Huh? I work all day, sister." Anyway, she's doing great, um, but it wasn't easy. So, I put this slide up just because, uh, of, <laughs> honestly, because I'm here with you today, but also my experience is absolutely a firm, strong partnership with her pediatrician, big time. Um, So I'm going to tell you quickly a little bit about who we are in special ed and what we do. So I have data. Just a little bit. This, can you read this? The numbers, is the font big enough? Okay. I tried to, um, when I asked my um, statistician guy to do this, It was tiny. I said, they're never going to be able to read this. Um, But basically, this is a pie chart showing all of our 7,590 kids on IEPs and what their breakdown is. And I don't know why it says category, name, value up at the top. That's fascinating. Oh, my God, they're all different. That's not what it says on mine. So let me just tell you... (laughs) It didn't transfer correctly. So the, um, the, big, the big part of the pie is specific learning disability. The second um, going down is speech and language impairment is 18.2%. Autism is 15.8%. Other health impaired is 14.6%. Intellectual disability is the yellow, that's 5%. Emotional disturbance is the gray, and that is 4.7 percent. Low incidence is 2.99 percent, and hard of hearing is 2.3. <clears throat> the emotional disturbance one, I always take issue with, because our kids who have uh, many ACEs—Are you familiar with the term ACEs, adverse childhood experiences? Yes. Okay, good. I figured you were. Um, Our kids who have trauma and ACEs often um, get captured and identified in that category. I struggle with that greatly because there's a predominance of black children in that category um, that are poverty, um, come from poverty areas in the city. And I have to question whether or not our conditions on the general ed side in the safe and supportive school side, the work of my dear friend and partner, Kevin Truitt, um, if we're not doing enough there, if we did a better job on the front end, um, creating conditions to address ACEs in our schools, then I have a funny feeling that that data point would be less. So that's um, something that I'm very mindful of and I'm going to be working on. Unfortunately, Kevin tells me he's retiring soon. And I'm very sad about that because we have a lot of work to do together still. All right, moving on to the next slide, educational settings. So now, you know, we have 7,590 kids on IEPs. And in the big gray spe- uh, space here is the RSP program. So about 60% of our kids are in the RSP program and in the yellow 17 17- Almost 18% are speech and language only. So about 75% of our kids are, in, are all general ed. We consider them general ed kids. The orange is special day class, and the blue are kids in non-public schools. That's another conversation. There's a lot going on with our kids in non-public schools. Um, and it's actually, well, it's another, that's 20 more slides. I'll come back next year, and we'll talk about that. Kids on the autism spectrum. So at the bottom of this, on the left-hand side, is the year 2000, which is the year I started at um, Grattan Elementary School. And I believe in about 2004 is when we got our first class for kids with autism that was specifically for kids on the spectrum, was at Grattan. and here we are today at 1,241 kids and we have, we have autism focused classes throughout the district now. It's on the rise and it's not just because we're better at diagnosing, trust me. I've spent my, the last 18 years of my life immersed in a K-5 educational setting and I can tell you that Asperger's and autism is increasing. First-hand experience. Don't even argue with me. <laughs> All right, the ethnicity of our students, and I had to put this in because of um, my concerns around disproportionality, um, back to the emotionally disturbed and the aces, and um, we are just over-identifying um, kids of color, and it's a problem in our district. At the same time, we, uh, we can miss kids um, with uh, discrete learning disabilities because we don't want to over-identify. We have a lot of work to do in the area of disproportionality. We're being watched by the state, and we um, do a lot of work cross-departmentally to address this. Have we banged at home yet? No. I'm still in the game. Uh, there's a lot of people who are focused on this, and we will continue to take it on. So now that parents know that they may have a kid who has been identified, they have to enter into the world of special education. Our reputation is not stellar, let's all face it. People talk about special ed. I know they do. Um, And so this is where I'm going to appeal to all of you today. Child find. It's a process that requires us to identify, locate, and evaluate our children with disabilities residing in our jurisdiction. The obligation includes all students who attend private, including religious schools, migrant or homeless, students who are wards of the state, and students with suspected disabilities who are still advancing in grade levels. I think it's worthy to note that you're on the front lines, we went that slide in the back, if you have even an inkling of suspicion, you should bust it out, and you should write a letter to the principal. You should encourage the parents to get into the schools. Um, not every principal receives those letters from doctors or parents in a way that's lawful um, because they're not schooled correctly in the law. That's my job. It doesn't mean that you don't do it or you, or you get frustrated in the process. Um, and Later on, in a couple more slides, I'm going to... Show you some um, resources in the city um, that you can, you should have on your Rolodex so that if a parent comes back to you and says they hit a snag or they hit a roadblock or something didn't happen, then you need to go to the next step um, and, and just push and push and push. Um, when we get a letter from a doctor that says, do an assessment on this kid. More often than not, I'll be honest with you, when you wrote letters to me and told me about your patient and it was my kid, I was like, "Mm mm-hmm, more than likely, we had already had a couple of meetings on the books and we were maybe even in process or ready, ready to go. We're in cahoots, in other words. Very seldom does something come out of left field and I'm like, yeah, no, that's ridiculous. Um, but if we did have that feeling of, yeah, you no, know, that's ridiculous, we still, by law, have to write that parent a letter uh, saying this isn't going to happen and this is why. And then of course, then we would go to the alternative dispute resolution because the parent would say, yes, I want this to happen. And, uh, eventually more than likely it would happen. (coughs) Excuse me. So the referral, um, well, we just talked a little bit about the referral. Basically make the referral. Don't hold back. I'm moving a little quickly because I want to make sure we have time for Q and A. Um, navigation is key, and this is, again, you're going to need a, um, a support person along the way. Um, so it's, it's important that you have those resources to direct parents accordingly, and I'm going to give you some before we leave today. Um, anybody basically can ask for an assessment. Obviously, the parent, um, a caregiver, um, a teacher, uh, the principal, uh, the doctor, all of that. A child, you know this, I hope you know this already, but a child with a disability may be eligible for special education um, if they meet the criteria under one of these 13 disabilities. The IEP, the IEP. The bottom line is the IEP is the meeting where you all come to the table. Obviously, I I can't say that I've ever had a medical professional at the table. I have absolutely called a doctor. If I get um, a release of information, we'll skip over that slide. It's a few more ahead. Um, If I get the release of information, if a parent wants us to talk to one another, we absolutely will, and we should. And all of your um, great information will be considered and brought to the table when we're creating a program for a child. An IEP is not just a meeting. It's a process, Anybody on the team can say oh, it 's time to meet again, or I have some concerns or i 'm not sure if that's an appropriate goal or um, so we try to consistently bring the team together um, for what 's right for a kid uh, so it's sometimes it can get nutty. people want part six, part seven that 's when uh, we start to not get along very well with each other there's a sweet spot in there. I would encourage um, parents and educators to find the sweet spot so that we're not we're not burning each other out services an IEP may include specialized academic instruction related services the use of supplementary aids and services curriculum accommodations and modifications which is huge and has been underutilized in my opinion I want, I want the teachers and the principals at the schools to get more creative with accommodations in the classroom and a range of other services individually designed to provide educational benefit. The least restrictive environment is the general education setting. We try, I think the next slide sort of has a picture here. Um, So the least restrictive is gen ed with some supports, and then it's gen ed with some push-in with a a special ed teacher in the room helping out. The next level is general ed, where you get pulled out for some intervention, so maybe some daily reading intervention to bolster your reading. Um, We have self-contained classrooms where kids spend more than 50% of their day in a special class, but we always should be pulling them out to the greatest extent possible to be with their peers on the other end. Um, there are special day schools uh, we don't have any necessarily in our district but they are in the non-public range we, that's our non-public schools some kids have to go to residential treatment centers um, I don't even want to discuss detention facilities I have had students um, go to ju- the juvenile justice center it breaks my heart luckily I'm a street soldier having worked with Joseph Marshall do you know Joe Mon? Thank you, Street Soldier. Um, back in the day, the best—that was the best training I ever had. Training—I'm telling you, it's, it's real. You know that. And lastly is um, hospital and homebound. And we work when I was at Grattan. We had a ton of kids up at UC up the hill in the oncology ward, or we had siblings of kids in the oncology ward, and we told spaces at Grattan School so the families could have access to a little neighborhood school. And so we did some great work, um, crossing over. I learned a lot about what that's all about. So this just sort of spells out, um, the greatest access to, um, general ed. I'm going to move on because we're almost done. All right. You guys need to know this. This is important for you because you're, you're on the front line with the parents. They have to have meaningful parent participation, so you need to school them on that and remind them that if they're going into an IEP, remember my story when I talk too much. Um, there are teachers out there who are still talking too much because I haven't trained them yet. Um, parents trained me. I want to be honest with you. The parents in this city have schooled me on so, 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 so much in my career. Um, so the parents can be their own best advocate and say, it's my turn to talk, or you need to consider my input, uh, you know, and kind of advocate for themselves. The next parent right is prior written notice. If they ask for something, um, we need to write back to them. So, for instance, that referral. If they want a referral, and the school absolutely thinks there's no referral necessary, we don't just say no. We have to write back to them officially and tell them why we don't think it's um, necessary if they ask for their own iPad, um, and we don't think they need their own iPad, which by the way, that's not even an issue anymore. Cause almost all kids have access to iPads all day now. Anyway, um, anyway, we would write back to them. So prior written notice, um, they have to get everything back in writing. And when there's a disagreement. There is um, an absolute avenue for them to take. It's called ADR, Alternative Dispute Resolution. Progress monitoring. We already talked about the importance of that, so I'm not going to read that slide. You know that our job is to monitor their progress and to readjust as necessary. If we're not progress monitoring, then we're breaking the law, and you need to tell the parent to call us out on that, and then we're going to come to an agreement of how to move forward together. Release of information can go both ways, obviously. So that needs to be a thoughtful discussion with the parent as to whether or not you want to sign off on that. Um, it's, it's, it has to do with trust, in my opinion. So if a family is feeling that there's some trust on the other side at the school... Um, As I said, I was that special ed principal. I think I did gain the trust of many of my families, or if not most of my families, and we were able to do great, great things together for their kids because we trusted each other. But I don't take for granted that that isn't always the case. Just know that that's out there. I have three final slides. I'm part of Our Children, Our Families Council in San Francisco. Are you familiar with that at all, Chief Scott? Um, It's a coming together of city agencies. It's uh, basically the mayor and the superintendent, and we're um, popping out certain issues, and we're wrapping around it as a city together. Um, We've been looking at attendance since I've been chief. That's another 20-slide presentation. We have a huge attendance issue in this school district, predominantly among um, children with disabilities and children of color. It's not okay. We can't teach them if they're not there. This is me, special education department. That is the main phone number. For years, when you called that number, nobody answered or it went into some Byzantine horrible place. Um, I actually should have put my cell phone down there. I would have done that because I don't answer it. I always just uh, retrieve messages unless you know a name pops up. I hate ringing phones. It's my ADHD. Um, Anyway, we're on uh, the um, website at where Robertson J1 is my email, Robertson J1 at sfusd.edu. We can talk about that more. This is the slide that you need to have. This is an absolute must. And our support for families' partners are in the house? Woo-hoo! Um, We do Yeah, yep, they do deserve. <laughs> They are the hardest working people, and they, I love, it doesn't say hotline, it says warm line, because they are warm demanders. They're so forgiving, but they're fierce advocates at the same time. That's a dance, that's a fine line, and they're great at it. And this is who you call when you don't get answers from us, okay? And so this is my final slide. Your timing is perfect. (laughs) So I just want you to know that this little guy um, is doing a timeout, and he is chewing a chew stick, as you can see, and he's absolutely fine and happy and got right back into the class, but this isn't acceptable on so many levels and in so many schools, and so it needs to be acceptable because that's what he needed in the moment. His timeout needed to be upside down with a chew stick. Um, so just remember that accommodations are key. Um, I'm sorry I had to go a little fast at the end, but I want to thank you for your attention, and I'm happy to be a partner with you in this work.